Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Laura Van Rensburg about her debut psychological suspense novel, Nobody But Us. Laura is a French writer living in the UK, whose writing has appeared on several online magazines and anthologies, and in 2019, she was shortlisted for the first novel prize. In this episode, we discussed how the Me Too movement inspired her novel getting into the psyche of unlikable characters, and her resilience in getting an agent. But first, here's Law with an excerpt from Nobody But Us. The house will tell them what happened. Everything here tells a story. The truth will set you free, they say. They're wrong. It begins with the silent heartbeat of blue light pulsing through the windows, before the outside world invades the space with thuds and footsteps. Through the open front door, Scald sneaks in and rushes up the stairs. The house shudders and comes to life. It spreads with voices, which shatters the silence further. Gradually, a few words rises through the pandemonium of noises. Victim, unresponsive, Jesus Christ. They belong to a police officer with a Burt Reynolds moustache. A shiny badge reads Deputy Wilcox. Black letters etched on brass. The O almost scratched into another C. His eyes are full of questions as he tries to take in what happened here. He smells of coffee, the foam of it hemming the bristles of his moustache. Yellow teeth in need of scaling peek from under his chapped lips. Palming his chin, he takes in a scene rarely witnessed in those quiet parts of the county. A car wreck, maybe. The odd wood-chopping accident, but this? This is what animals do to each other. And in the bowel of the forest, not in some fancy house. What's happened here stains the carpet and the wall is red and it reeks. He closes his eyes, but the images cling to him, trapped behind his lids. They follow him as he heads back downstairs. All around the house unfolds like the scene in A Penny Dreadful. On the third step lies a discarded heart on a broken chain. A present to a girl who no longer exists. One of Wilcox's colleagues collected up, dropping it inside a little plastic bag where the romantic token becomes another clue to the gruesome events that have unfolded here. Once sealed, the bag joined others, mostly pregnant with what looks like shredded clothing. One of them holds the broken pieces of a mug. 
On the first floor, there are more officers dotted around, more eyes asking questions, more chaos. An explosion of camera flashes, the static first from police radios, the smack of latex gloves. A persistent smell which gets worse down here and forces Deputy Wilcox to breathe through his mouth. The stench of death and body fluid seeping out. Blood streaks the door frames and walls. The kitchen counter is smeared with it. Riddles, stained plaster and wood, written in cast-off and spatters left to be deciphered. In the living room, a wheelchair lies on its side like some wounded animal, while the charred remains of a bag smolder in the fireplace. Everything here tells the story. Leaving the mayhem behind, Deputy Wilcox shuffles towards the gaping mouth of the front door. Outside, the sharp bite of cold air stings. Sunlight stains the horizon with pale yellow and oranges leading the way for a new day. No more overbearing clouds stretching over. Blue has reclaimed the sky where seagulls screams at the intruder disturbing the peace and quiet of the coast. The snow out front is peppered with a trail of blood. At the end of it, a gloved hand excavates a knife from its icy tomb. In the distance, the double doors of the garage yawn open and another officer, on his haunches, inspects the deep gashes in the flat front tyre. Nobody was getting out. Amid the SQ police cars, there is an ambulance waiting. Behind its bulky shape and flashing lights, the woods have stopped being an ominous presence. Trees have detangled themselves from the darkness. Everything is different under the light of day. But even if the snow is shimmering now with beauty, beneath it, the ground's still dead. Two paramedics jumped from the back of the ambulance. The air inside is flavoured with the strong smell of ammonia. The mattress on the stretcher is thin and squeaks with every move. Where to, guys? asked the deputy. Uh, Mercy General Hospitals, replied the medic with blonde hair in a low ponytail. He looks too young to be responsible for someone's life. After the ambulance's door slams shut, one word hangs in the air. Acrid, like sulphur from a lit match. One word that doesn't belong in this place. Mercy. Hi, Law. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on to talk about your new novel, Nobody But Us. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me. So we're going to have a tricky time speaking about your novel because there's so many twists and secrets and I'm going to be so careful not to give anything away. But you've got the hard job now. Can you tell us a little bit about the plot of your novel? Okay, so um, Nobody But Us is the story of Ellie, who is um, an NYU grad student. Um, She's kind of wide-eyed, young, and she's just started dating a much older man called um, Stephen Harding, who is an esteemed professor um, at one of the uh, um, colleges called Barnard College. Um, And they are basically, at the opening of the novel, going away for their first um, time together, three days um, weekend. Um, And uh, they are going to an isolated cabin in the middle of the woods in Chesapeake Bay. Um, And it's supposed to be the perfect romantic gateway they'll be able to get to know each other we're from prying eyes um but we soon discover that Stephen is not actually the perfect boyfriend that we think he is 
But then we slowly discover that Ellie is not who she says she is either. And when a snowstorm trapped them in the house with their lies, it quickly becomes clear that um, it's going to be quite uh, three days and that maybe not both of them will make it that alive. And you've started the novel with a really intriguing, horrifying prologue. <laughs> and uh, that kind of sets the tone, really, of, of a, a nice tease of what's going to happen with the rest of the novel. So was it always, did, did the novel always start with that prologue? Did you always have that kind of horrific crime scene as your opening? It's, it was there from the early, from one of the early drafts it wasn't there from the very first draft um but it uh, I moved it as a prologue um early on um and once it got there um it didn't really change much in the sense that uh, I tend to write a very lean first draft and then I go back with each you know uh, new draft and editing and I kind of add layers and delve deeper so I kind of added more details um, into the prologue as the draft went along but the bare bones of uh, that opening um, was the same from from almost the beginning. And prologues I think can be quite controversial I, I love a prologue I've got a prologue in my novel as well so I'm, I'm all on board for a prologue. But what made you decide to then move that to the front of the novel? Was it something you just felt like you really wanted to, to hook readers in with? Yes, um, and I was very, you know, aware of um, the, the genre of the novel, which is um, psychological um, suspense. Um, and I do like the stories that um, open with either um, a flashback or a flash forward. Um, and then you try to piece together how, you know, either how does that scene fit or how do we get mm. there from, especially from then the, the jarring op after the prologue, the jarring opening of having this couple who seems to be in love and perfect. So you, you do want, hopefully you do want to read to find out how they got mm. to work uh, to that opening. Yeah. I love it as a reader because you're, as you're reading the novel, your brain's doing all the work for you. And it's kind of thinking how on earth are we going to get to this point where you know, the, I think there's a the, a police officer in the in the novel says like this is this is the stuff of animals. What's happened in this house? So, yeah, I definitely think readers will be using their wild imaginations to to wonder what's gone on. Yes, and I was really happy that neither my agent agent or editor at any stage wanted to to cut that prologue. So um, I was we we're on the same page from the beginning. So as we've said, this book is incredibly difficult to discuss in much detail because we don't want to give anything away but I was wondering if you could kind of give away or tell us your inspiration for the novel. A really big uh, inspiration for me um, and actually I mentioned it in the author's note um, at the end of the novel um, was the start of the Me Too movement um, because until that time I didn't quite realize how many women shared you know not the same story but similar experience and we all had some kind of a story uh, related to to the movement and you know um um sexual assault or sexual harassment um, so that was quite an eye opener for me um, and I wanted to uh, to 
and I thought it was really important to share those stories because when you, you share those stories and those themes, then, you know, we feel less alone and realise that, you know, other people are going through a similar experience. So that's something I really wanted to explore um, in my book. But without giving a, an answer, all I want really with this book um, is open a discussion. And I hope people, you know, at the end of the book will want to talk about it with, with others and, you know, give their interpretation and, um, and how they felt um, about it. Um, so that, that's that been a big um, inspiration. Um, something else as well that I really wanted to um, to play with, it was the, um, the trope and the stereotype of um, the power dynamics in an older man, younger woman um, relationship. So that's something I definitely wanted to play with. And this story kind of was the, the, the perfect canvas um, to do that, really. I read in another interview that you said that kind of your characters usually are your driving force for inspiration and a place where you often start a story. So Ellie and Stephen are pretty complex, dark characters. So how did you how did you do that work? How did you get into their psyche? Um, well, strangely enough, I don't have, you know, um, characters um, sheet. Um, not, you know, that they, they're not useful. They work, they work for other people. They just don't work um, mm. for me. Um, I tend to keep it all inside my head and I literally just, you know, live with those characters um, inside my head um, all the time, even when I'm not writing. Um, and I pretty much psychoanalyze them um, in my head. So if I decide that one of them is going to have, you know, a particular trait. So for example, um, I can, I can easily say Stephen um, doesn't like tattoos um, in the story. <laughs> it was wasn't just a funny, you know, quirk that I wanted to give his personality. I had to have a reason for it. So, you know, it was a case of then backtracking of why wouldn't you like tattoos? What does he associate them with? Um, and I do that kind of work with everything with those, uh, with those characters. Um, and I say with, with each edit, I kind of get to know them a bit better. And then I add another layer to, um, to their stories. Um, so a lot of the work is done with each subsequent um, edit and just keep on thinking about them, thinking about their actions and their decisions and why they are doing uh, what they are doing. I, I need to feel there is that consistency. If, if anybody come up, comes up to me and say, why did they do this in that scene? Or why did they say that? I can justify it. It was just that. I don't know, it looked pretty on the paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have to talk now about your setting and location for your novel, because it takes mostly takes place in one location, very isolated house um, in a very kind of claustrophobic atmosphere. And it's very tense that helps build that atmosphere. So what gave you the inspiration for the setting? Because obviously it's in the States. It's very different from where you live. So what, what gave you that inspiration? Um, well, first of all, I really did make the job easy for myself having them staying in the same place for an entire novel because <laughs> it is there's only so many different ways you can describe the same room over and over again. <laughs> um, but um, I knew from the beginning that I wanted them to be in an isolated location that felt, you know, like there would be nobody around for miles. And I felt that one of the country that truly give that sense of vastness is the US. So, which is one of the, the reason I decided to, um, to set the story over there. 
Um, and then I didn't want to do the usual, when people go on a weekend away from York, they tend to drive up north to Connecticut and Vermont and places like that. Um, and I thought it was a bit too romantic and also a bit too obvious. So I decided to, for them to go to the opposite direction. Um, and I remember, because uh, I'm a big film buff, I remember the film, um, The Blair Witch Project, which actually mm -hmm. happens in the woods in Maryland. So I decided that it could be kind of a, a nice um, kind of claustrophobic, creepy um, atmosphere because uh, I have never been to Maryland. I've never been to Chesapeake Bay. Um, so um, I have been to very cold locations. So I, I have experienced, you know, extreme weather and the snow and, you know, blizzard condition, things like that. So I could... Mm go back to those kind of experience um but also used um a lot of um um google images um i've been using uh, i use films um a lot as well so um, i kind of um went back to um, um films in kind of extreme snow location like um wind river um, and use that um, as well to help me with the, with the setting um and i think one thing that helped as well is um i'm a very visual writer so I see everything that I write in my novel mm. so it's almost like I'm watching the film and just then transcribing on paper um what I can see in my head so that helped a lot as well with with the settings I could literally just see it all in my head and I just had to trans transcribe mm. it yeah I definitely got that sense for your writing it's very atmospheric I was wondering like you you've mentioned that films play a big part in your process so do you think that helped you build that tension and that pacing that's so essential for a psychological psychological suspense novel uh, yes I think I think definitely because I do watch um, a lot of um, um, crime and um, thriller um, film as well um, and those things tend to be really really taunt so um, they're very good um, exercise um, to um, in pacing um, but I have to say, it was also a lot of trial and tribulation in terms of getting the uh, the, the pacing um, right. Um, this book is pretty much an exercise in cut and paste. Um, I have I have moved scenes around so much throughout all the different edits just to make sure that I got the pacing right and I got the the right crescendo. Of, uh, of tension because um, a lot of the scene which are on, in the novel were there very early on but they were in the wrong places right um, so I did a lot of work first by myself um, and then after that was my editor um, to make sure that we got that pacing and that crescendo um, just right. Mm. So was the structural edit part of your process the most challenging out of all the stages? <laughs> I don't know if I would call it challenging because I'm one of those weird writers that actually really enjoy editing. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, um, I, um, I see the novel as a kind of a, um, I say, as a, a, a kind of big lump of clay and the editing is really getting things into shape. And I really get a thrill from seeing the, you know, the, the, the form and the picture emerge from, uh, from that clay. Um, but um, I have, a, um, an, I'm very lucky as well to have an editor who completely understood the novel from the very beginning and had the same vision as I did. So our edits pretty much, you know, completely met um, and she understood what I was doing and I understood what she wanted me to achieve through those um, edits. So it was a, I felt it was a very 
collaborative um, process. And I think that helped that um, a lot as well. I would agree with you. I'm one of those weird people as well. I like I like a good edit. I would rather do editing than write a first draft. I hate <laughs> writing. Yeah, a first I, I think draft. I actually agree with you there. When you were when you were writing something which has so many secrets and twists and kind of turns and direction as your novel, did you feel like you had to be very careful in what you gave away, what you held back? How did you kind of manage to? tease just a little bit of the secret without kind of spilling it too soon so that your readers would still be a surprise surprised as they as they progressed in the novel and to be honest as a writer I found it really really difficult to um to judge because I know where everything is I know where all the reveals where all the clues are where all the twists are so I find it really hard to, to judge if I'm giving too much or too little. And to be honest, I tend to give away too little and end up being a bit, you know, opaque. And something that I found incredibly useful is, um, first, I have a really great um, critique partner um, who I, um, I catch up with um, once a month and we exchange um, work. And she, she read um, early draft and parts of, um, of Nobody But Us uh, and also had um, a couple of um, beta readers um, when, uh, when I was um, writing on the novel. And I found their feedback incredibly um, useful in the sense that they were able to tell me this this doesn't really make much sense or you mm. didn't give enough signposts so when that twist arrived it just kind of you know hit me and I didn't really know where it was coming from um so I I relied on their feedback quite a lot to um mm. to then with the edit decide where I needed to add more when I I needed to signpost things better because I, I don't know for you but I hate um when you get a novel and you get that big twist and revelation there's absolutely nothing foreshadowing it mm. you know to, yeah. it's, it's almost like suddenly this person that was wasn't there during the entire novel just jump from the bushes and go aha I was <laughs> <Yeah>. the killer <laughs> but they haven't been mentioned during the entire novel Definitely. Um, so so for me the best the best book the, the stories that I enjoy the most is when you get to that twist that reveal you go of course, mm. because if you go back, there was this, this and that, and that leads up to. So that's something I was really conscious to do in my book. I didn't want twist to just come out of mm. nowhere. And, you know, yes, you want you would never see them coming because there's absolutely no clue that they are coming. <laughs> um, so I did, I did rely a lot on other people to, uh, to help me signpost um, properly. In terms of the story, did you have it all decided from the beginning? Did you know every single twist and turn every secret or were there points as you I know you said your your early drafts are quite lean were there points where you were like oh I've just had another idea for a great little se- twist or a great little secret to come out did you add any more um I did um the, the really really big ones um were there from from the beginning um, but uh, for some of the, the, the smaller ones, um, some of the ones related, especially to the kind of the, the backstory of um, um, Ellie and Stephen's relationship or who Ellie and Stevens are um, independently from each other. Um, some of those um, came gradually, um, again, in that work of adding layers 
to the story and layers to the characters. Um, but also a few got, um, a couple got added um, after I got my um, agent um, because um, we did um, a couple of edits together before we went out to submissions on uh, with the two publishers. And she felt that we needed not more twists, but we needed a couple more red herring and sending right. the reader into a wrong direction. There was, there was, the right amount of twist but there wasn't enough red herring to to lay mm. the, um, the the reader astray so we did work on on added um a couple of more um of those um and uh, and again her feedback was um, um invaluable um because I, I she brought to my attention things that i wouldn't have thought of on my own and which at the end of the day make the story um, better mm. that must have been quite fun to come up with all the red herrings Yes, yes. I always find it quite fun to uh, think of something really, really horrible to put in a novel. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure what it says about, yeah, about your, me. Your, but... novel, your novel's quite dark and twisted, so let's hope it doesn't reveal too much about you. <laughs> yes, but you know, at least I, I'm working out all the aggression on paper. So, <laughs> that is uh... true, that is true. <laughs> it's so just, you... the best thing for stress, to just kill people on paper and you'll feel so much better afterwards. There we go, that's, that's the ultimate stress busting tip there. Yes. You've mentioned that you were inspired by the Me Too movement and you kind of hope that that's a discussion point when people finish the book. So I, I think this is a great book club read. If, if anyone has like a psychological suspense book club, it would be a great book to discuss afterwards. So what is it that you hope that readers will feel when they finish this book? I really hope that um, it's uh, it starts a, a discussion uh, because both characters are unlikable character. Um, and to be honest, it never entered my mind that I had to make one of them likable or it, I didn't even make a conscious decision, you know, about likable or unlikable. They are just people with, you know, their, their qualities and their flaw. After that, you know, the reader can decide if they are likable or not, but that does never kind of enters my mind. Um, but something that I really hope is that it's, um, it starts a discussion of, you know, what would you do in a similar situation? Um, you know, do you think, you know, they make the right um, choices? Did they go too far or did not go far enough? Can you justify, you know, um, doing something wrong to correct um, another situation, um, you know, does does two wrong make a right? Mm. Um, so um, as I say, I'm not saying you know that what any of the characters did was the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, I'm not you know trying to 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 preach saying you know this is the answer, this is the solution. Um, it's more a question of this is a story about you know this situation. This is what those characters have done in that situation. What would you have done? You know, do you agree with them? Do you disagree? Yes or no? Um, and so I hope it sparks those kind of um, of discussion, um, especially around you know things like you know consent and um, the uh, the idea of you know what it is of you know being a good guy, being an ally. Um, also, you know, what do we call? Um, a promising, you know, young woman. I think, you know, there's the stereotype of what a promising young woman is supposed to be. But I think now with with um, feminism, um, there is, you know, a different expectation for us of what we feel a promising young woman is. Um, and it actually kind of goes against what that initial definition um, is. So, you know, in a, in a sense is, 
from which side of the fence is Ellie a promising young woman? Is it from the stereotype or from that new you know, definition? So I, yeah, I really hope it's, it's Park's conversation because I say in this book, there is no wrong or right um, answer. Um, it's just to provide um, a story about those particular character and their own decision um, and their own um, action. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So I was wondering if you could share with us what you found to be the biggest challenge when writing this novel. And, I mean, particularly as a debut you come across several challenges, but what do you think was a challenge for you and, and how did you overcome it? Um, I think one of my biggest challenge, um, especially before writing this novel, is I never was a planner whatsoever. I was, you know, a penser through and through, um, but writing psychological suspense, those has to be tightly plotted and very taunt and yeah, the pacing has to be right and I had to do some planning um I'm not you know a hundred percent planner now because there is always element in the story that I can't work out until I start writing so I do have moment was like oh they're here they will have to get there how I'm not quite sure but when I start writing that's when I start figuring out but um I had to make sure I had a very solid um structure so for the first time in my life I actually used um an excel spreadsheet um and what I did is I had my uh, three act structure 
um, on there. And then each act was broken down by chapter. Then each chapter was broken down by scenes. And then I make sure that I knew the purpose for each scene, if there was any revelation in that particular scene. Um, also kept track of whose point of view we were in because we I alternate well not strictly alternated because sometimes you get two Stevens chapters in a row so I kind of make sure that I kept track on who was the point of view in that chapter as well making sure that you know my midpoint was in the middle of the novel where was my climax um, and um, so that that helped a lot um, and actually discovered that it helped me a lot when it came to editing because I say I did a lot of cut and pasting and I actually planned all those cut and paste on the spreadsheet first because mm. it was a lot easier to move cells or rows around highlighting them in red and then once I had figured that on the spreadsheet I could save a new draft on word and I could start cutting and pasting chunk mm. of text without you know losing track in the middle then if I was losing track I'd just refer back to um to the spreadsheet um so that that was um a real um challenge for me um and I would say the, the other biggest challenge was um self-doubt because every other week I thought you know this is not good enough no you know nobody's ever going to want to read that it's not pacey enough it's not you know there isn't you know car chase or or mm -hmm. it's not deep it's not deep enough and it doesn't say anything so I had to battle those kind of uh, of demons and those you know little voices in my head and kind of um, work through them because it um, it goes through cycles you know you go through a cycle where everything is horrible and why are you doing this <laughs> And then you're going to wake up one week and start reading. It's like, oh, did I read that? That's actually not bad. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe actually this is quite good. Um, so so that, that was a big um, challenge um, as well. So with the self-doubt, obviously that's an ongoing thing and it's not something anyone can overcome particularly easy. Do you still have to kind of give yourself a good talking to every now and again to, to make sure you're not drifting into self-doubt? Oh God, yes, yes. Every other week. Um, I don't think <laughs> I, I don't think it ever goes away. Well, I don't think for me it will mm. ever go away. Um, I always, you know, have times where I um I question my my writing and the quality of my stories and things like that. But what I've learned is that it passes. So I know if uh, if I'm in the middle of what the cycle, I know it's going to pass. Uh, but also I know, you know before I had my critique partner that I could reach out as well and talk things through with her. Um, but now also, in addition, I've got my agent and my editor were both incredibly um, supportive um, as well. Uh, which I have now learned to rely on them as well. Because uh, at the beginning, um, I thought, oh, no, must not disturb my agent. You know, she's very busy. She has clients. And then I realized that I am one of her clients. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, her, it's her job to, uh, to, to support me. Um, so I'm, I'm learning to now also use mm. um, that resources um, as well. And that it's okay to contact her to talk things through um, about you know, the novel or the writing or things like that. So that helps a lot as well, having a support system. Mm. So apart from your novel, you've also written some short fiction that explores some of the bigger topics that you explore in Nobody But Us kind of things about women's lives rage and abuses of power and things so why do you think those topics really resonate with you why 
are you drawn to them in your writing? I think there's a, a, a couple of reasons. Um, I was raised by strong women. Um, my, my mother is a, is a very uh, strong, independent woman. Um, and also growing up, um, I we lived and I was partially raised by my grandmother um, as well, who was um, an incredibly um, strong woman. And as I got older, um, I got to learn, you know, stories from before I was born. And, um, um, and it's, you know, it's unbelievable the things that they had to uh, to, to go through and the resilience. And um, again, it kind of, you know, make you realize that people, even the people the closest to you have stories that you don't know about until you start you know, sharing them. Um, so that's something that I definitely um, wanted to um, uh, to rely on for my um, short stories. Um, and again, it goes back as well to um, to that day on Twitter with the Me Too hashtag. Um, and I realized that there were so many different stories from women. Um, and that's something I try to convey as well in my short stories is I always try to pick a different theme or a different kind of story to kind of highlight the variety of, of experience there is out there. And I think it's a very essential question as well of, you know, if, we, if you don't talk about it, nothing is ever going to change and you can't raise awareness. Um, and I, I feel that the way I can raise awareness is through my creative writing and my fiction writing. Um, so if that's the way, you know, I can contribute um, to, um, to the issue and, and raising awareness, um, I will definitely do that. So I want to go right back to the beginning now and talk about the early days of your writing career and ask you really when your love of writing began when did you first start writing and and when did you realize that you had a novel on your hands and um, well I've always been writing on and off since I was a child um, and again it goes back to my mother strong woman who thrusted uh, my first book that didn't have pictures on it into my hand and, um, um, and I just got completely sucked in. Um, and going back to even before when I was writing, I was always creating stories, you know, with my dolls or animals. And um, um, and then when I got the pen and paper, I started putting those stories, um, short stories on uh, on paper and getting everybody in my family to um, to read them. Or um, at, at school, because I was um, born and raised in, in France um, at, um, primary school in France they often get you to write little stories and stuff like that so I used to to write those um as well um and then when I became a teenager you know I was one of those um um emo teenager I was starting to write you know very tortured <laughs> poetry uh which luckily is in French so nobody can read it here <laughs> um so, uh, but it was really kind of about six years ago where I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try to see if I can do this seriously. Um, because before, you know, it was always fun. It was always a hobby, something that's always loved. But writing is something, you know, or being an author, something that happened to other people, you know, who have studied, you know, English or French at university, and which is not what I did. Um, 
so what I did is then um, I went on um, a few workshop and masterclasses because I thought, you know, if I, if I want to make a real go at it and I want to get published, I need to understand how the whole publishing industry works and how you get an agent and things like that. Um, and um, I went to my, my first workshop, which was um, on how to find a literary agent. Um, and actually, when I went there, I really thought that, you know, my writing was all that. And, you know, it was just <laughs> going to confirm everything that I already yeah. knew. And, and then by the end of that workshop, there was two things that I was certain. It's like I had a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> and I was seriously deluded before I, I attended that workshop. And also the agent that, that conducted that workshop, um, who's called Juliet Missions, um, I thought she was really, really you know a wonderful person um and very you know energetic and um, someone that you know must be really great to have um as an agent so because i knew there was so much that i needed to do um i did um a few um courses um also wrote a, a first novel that um uh, I submitted, uh, but got lots of nice rejection, but uh, didn't go anywhere. So I uh, I wallowed for a little while and then peeled myself off the floor and um, um, started to to write um, what will become nobody um, but us. Because of my first experience of, you know, getting rejection, um, I was really kind of delaying to the, 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 the furthest possible having to submit again mm. and going through you know the, the crushing feeling of being rejected so what I did is I found an organization that organized one-to-one -one with agents so I thought I will book a one-to-one -one with them send my submission package and depending on what that agent says either I can do more edits or I can start you know can put my big girl pens on and start <laughs> submitting um and it turns out that I did this one-to-one. -one, the agent just told me that they loved it and they wanted, you know, the full manuscript if I um, if I had it ready, which uh, which I had. Um, so that kind of gave me the idea. Uh, well, to be honest, the, the first, the, actually, the really first time I thought that maybe I had a novel worth publishing is um, I entered it in a few competition and from. A few of them, nothing happened. But then I got shortlisted for the um, first novel prize. Um, and I had a long chat with uh, with one of the um, judging organizers. Um, and from the shortlisting and from her feedback, that's when I thought, actually, maybe, you know, there is mm. there is a market or there is a place for this novel. Um, didn't submit it straight away. I went back and did more edit based on, on her feedback. But that was the first time I thought maybe there was an inkling. Um, and then that agent one-to-one -one kind of decided me that, you know, yes, um, it was uh, it was time to um, to go and, and submit it um, widely and, and see what happened. So after that one-to-one, -one, was that one-to-one -one with your now agent or did you go on to submit to other agents? Uh, no, that wasn't. Um, actually, my, my agent, um, which I'm very fortunate, is actually that agent, which I went to a workshop six mm. years ago, um, Juliet. Uh, and because she was my dream agent, she was actually the very last agent that I queried. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. because uh, You to, saved to the best to last. Yeah, well, to quote <laughs> Hamilton, I did not want to waste my shot. So, mm. um, and, and what has happened is... Um, 
after I submitted so to that first agent, I started submitted so more widely, and then I had I had three more uh, requests for the full manuscript, um, and again I fell into the trapping, thinking I have arrived. I just need to wait, and the offers are going to come rolling in, and then one by one they all you know rejected the full manuscript, um, and I was absolutely crushed. Um, but then, you know, I talk it through with my, my critique partner and a couple of friends and then decided to do some tweaks to my um, uh, cover letter um, and then, you know, started submitting again and then starting again to get some requests for the former manuscript and then starting to get a couple of offer of representation. And by that stage, I thought, you know, if I ever going to submit to Juliet, now is the time. Um, so that's when I, I submitted to her um, and she wanted to, to offer me representation as well. Uh, but I still met with all three agents because uh, I just wanted to make sure that I picked the right person. But at the end of the day, Juliet was just a perfect fit. Um, she, um, she completely understood the novel, what I was trying to do, um, how, to, how to pitch it. Um, so that's why I decided to go with her in the end. Yeah, your story is really inspiring because I, I love that you just didn't give up and you faced a lot of rejection. You know, you wrote a novel when it didn't it didn't get accepted by anyone and you didn't think, right, that's it. I'm giving up. I'm never writing again. You carried on. You wrote a new novel and you kept going. And I think that will be really reassuring for other aspiring writers to hear that it isn't easy for for everyone. You know, some people are lucky some people get a an agent on their first go but sometimes it does take their resilience and you know resilience is is what a writer needs for this process particularly when you're going out on submission and things like that so what was your process like for getting the book deal was that similarly kind of turbulent or was it more straightforward um it was a bit of both um we we did as i say we did a couple of um round of edits um with juliet um and then she had um, a very um detailed list of who she wanted to um to do the first round of submissions i think there was about 12 um editors on there um and we had a discussion beforehand about how she wanted uh, or how i wanted her to keep me informed um you know do i wanted to get to hear from her every time she got an answer do i only wanted mm. to hear about the yeses um and in the end what did we decided is um i only wanted an update once a week on a specific day even if there was no news just to send me an email say no news this week um because first i knew like that i wouldn't live refreshing my inbox yeah. which would have you know driven me crazy it works for other people it stimulates then for me just massive anxiety so i thought if i know the email when it's coming and that it will come regardless um and um, and also from having friends who had been published before me, I knew that it can take you know some time to uh, to hear. Um, so I had prepared myself for this as well. Um, but that all that beautiful plan kind of went out of the window after twenty four hours. because um, very luckily we started to get some interest um, straight away from the UK, but from foreign territories um, as well. So we ended up going to option um after a few days in the uk and in the us um as well um but um so it was a whirlwind and things happened really really quickly but at the same time um juliet was so supportive you know 
calling me after any you know, meetings or offers or anything, talking me through things, um, explaining, you know, what I could expect before we had the auction. Um, so I, I don't think I would have, you know, be able to keep my sanity if it hadn't been um, for her. Uh, but at the same time, she, you know, she gave me all of the information, but she never told me what, what to do. You know, the decision was always mine to make um, at the end, but she made sure I had all the information. Um, so um, that's um, that that was she she helped make the, the process a lot you know painless than, than what it was. But yeah, it was it was a, a, an absolute whirlwind. And I do appreciate that, you know, I was really lucky that I didn't have to um to wait um as you know um that's the thing with publishing everybody has a different you know, experience. Um, so I was quite lucky that I didn't have to um, to wait for um, for a long period of time. So we've already talked about really important topics for writers such as self-doubt, resilience. So I was wondering if you could share your top three tips for anyone who is working on their first novel right now. Um, I think my first advice would be to always remember that the last draft is the one that matters. And it doesn't matter how many drafts it takes you to get to that last one. You know, some people get there in three, some people get there in 15. Um, but you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just take the time that you need. And all of those, you know, previous drafts can be as rubbish as you know, as they can be. Because as I say, it's only the last one that matters. Um, and also something that really helped me, and I've mentioned um, already during this podcast, is get feedback. Um, that is massively, massively um, helpful. Um, the way I see it, because you know, feedback can be a bit daunting because you know, you, a lot of people see it as criticism and pointing out, you know, where you're you know, being rubbish. Um, I see it as the opposite. Um, feedback is not about telling me where I'm bad, it's about telling me where I can do something better and how to make my story better. So I see it as a positive that's going to make my story better and, and pointing where, you know, there is room for improvement mm -hmm. instead of just pointing at things that are done badly. Um, and I also, you know, truly believe that receiving feedback and giving feedback helps you uh, being a better you know editor helping edit others helps your ed own editing skills um i do a lot of um uh, i've got a critique service so i do a lot of critique and one of the reasons why i do it is you know i want to give to give back um to the writing community but also it keeps my own editing skills sharp and it helps when i'm doing editing of my own work um, so I would definitely say get, get feedback and you know get people that you trust that you know you know it, ten, it can take a while to develop the relationship and find the right people but once you find them you know their feedback is invaluable um, and my third advice would be um, it sounds a bit like a given but read a lot and but read um, critically and also read widely so write critically is, for example, you know, read openings and have a look, you know, how quickly does the writer start the story? How much, you know, background information do they give or do not give? Um, study the dialogue, how much, you know, speech, speech tag or, you know, stage, stage direction is there between line of dialogues? Is it 
enhancing the dialogue or actually making it choppy. Um, but also read widely because you can, especially if you're writing genre fiction, you can learn a lot from other genres. Um, so, for example, you know, um, I write psychological suspense, but I can learn a lot about word, world building from fantasy or sci-fi. You can write, a, you can um, learn a lot about um pacing from romance um, novel uh, and about you know chemistry between characters and creating you know uh, believable characters as well uh, from psychological suspense or crime you can learn about you know pacing um, and how to, to drop those clues so there's lots to learn from all the different genres and you should never restrict yourself to only read into uh, into one genre that's a great bit of advice there so I was wondering whether you could give us some comparisons to other novels that you think are similar to Nobody But Us or share the same space or the same themes. Um, well, there's a, a few people uh, who have mentioned that um, or described Nobody But Us as um, my dark Vanessa meet Gone Girl, um, which, you know, not not the one saying it they did um, <laughs> but no it does it does have element and theme um from um from each story um but um from um current novels um two novels actually which are coming out uh quite soon um one of them is idol from louise o'neill um that deals again with a very similar theme around um predator and victim abuser and um and you know the, the the language that we use that each you know of those people um uses um as well so it's a fantastic um novel uh, and another one that's coming out soon as well is um uh women uh, young women um by um um jessica moore um and again um it's uh, it's all around um women stories and the narrative that we tell ourselves and we tell other women as well to try to make sense of our own history but also the history that is shared with us and trying to accept different stories um, from uh, from women um, so th those are kind of have um, similar themes um, as well. So I know you're busy working on your edits for your new novel your second novel so can you give us a little teaser about what it's what the plot is yeah um so yeah i'm doing the edits on book two at the moment uh, which is another psychological suspense and um, this one is taking place in south carolina um during a, a blistering summer um and it involves um a religious cult uh, that lives in an isolated, disused hotel, old plantation house. Um, and the story opened on um, just after a fire that claimed the life of the cult leader and his wife. And the story goes back and forth uh, from the week leading to the fire to the week um, just after the fire and the, the, the paranoia that slowly arise from um from that uh, that accident well i love a novel about a religious cult so i'm very excited <laughs> it sounds brilliant thank you so much for joining me today law oh thank you so much for having me that was law van rensberg talking about her debut psychological suspense novel nobody but us which is out now 
and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.